You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. Enjoy this exciting message from Senior Pastor Robin McMillan. I'm going to cover um, just sort of some some basic things. I think it's so easy to uh, get away from the basics. My dad was a college football coach, and I think he still holds the record for being the youngest the youngest college football coach to take a major college to a bowl game, which was back during the Second World War. And um, he went to my brother's high school practice one time, and they were practicing a triple, a triple reverse pass. Now, if you don't know football, you don't know what that is, but everybody in the backfield threw the ball to each other like four times, and then they chunked it down the field. And um, so when we got home, my dad said to my brother, who was on the team, he said, well, you guys can do the triple reverse pass, but you don't know how to block. You don't know how to tackle. And if you don't block and you don't tackle, you've lost the basics, you're going to lose. So he was pretty astute when it came to that kind of thing. So I'm going to cover some of the basics. We've been in um, the epistle of 1 John, uh, of course, not to be confused with the gospel of John. And um, as I've read through this, I believed um, that this little epistle, John designed to uh, reinforce significant truths to the church, to reinforce what he wrote in the Gospels. And as you read First John, it will help you, I think, reorient your mind and reorient your viewpoint towards some of the very basic things we cover uh, some of the very basic things in our faith. And so let's read 1 John 1, 5 through 10 together. And um, who's ready? Wave at me if you're ready. Wave at me if you can read. Okay. Okay, let's read this together. Verse 5. This is the life-giving message we heard him share, and it's still ringing in our ears. We now repeat his words to you. God is pure light. You will never find even a trace of darkness in him. If we claim that we share life with him, but keep walking in the realm of darkness, we're fooling ourselves and not living the truth. But if we keep living in the pure light that surrounds him, we share unbroken fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, continually cleanses us from all sin. If we boast that we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and are strangers to the truth. But if we freely admit our sins, when his light uncovers them, he will be faithful to forgive us every time. God is just to forgive us our sins because of Christ And he will continue to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we claim that we're not guilty of sin, when God uncovers it with his light, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. Not the most encouraging passages of scripture I have ever read publicly in church, but very, very significant. Um... As I mentioned, I believe that John's letter circulated to the churches 
was to was a re- reorientation letter. He covers basic concepts, basic truths that will help us to get free and or stay free from besetting sins and attitudes that can affect all of us. So he's reminding us of these basics. Now, let me ask this question, and don't uh, don't be shy. How many of you were not here last week? So it'll help me with what I need to... Yeah, wave at me so I can see you clearly. Yeah, it'll help me know how much I need to review. Last week I talked about... Um, uh, the the uh, helicopter crash that involved Kobe Bryant, his daughter, and seven others. And recently I read that the National Transportation Safety Board determined that the wreck was not due to engine failure. It was pilot failure. And the problem the pilot had is called um, spatial... Disorientation. Say that with me. Spatial disorientation. And what it means is in situations where the pilot's flying blind and he's not paying attention to his instruments, his navigation instruments, and many pilots don't have instrument ratings. How many of you are aware? Many pilots cannot fly unless the weather is um, at certain good condition. And so... There was this horrific wreck. Now the National Transportation Board, and I didn't know this last week when I talked about it, said it's not due to equipment failure. It wasn't due to engine failure. In essence, that pilot did not know where he was because he was disoriented, and he flew the helicopter into the ground. They say that helicopter was going at over 100, 120 miles an hour. Now, there's a... A Mr. Lawrence who says, uh, and he is a seasoned accident investigator, he said as the helicopter rapidly rose into the clouds in a zoom climb, the pilot could have become spatially disoriented as he peered from the helicopter to get his bearings. That's a condition, I mentioned this, it involves the inner ear and it can result in the inability to tell up from down. In some instances, pilots trying to level their aircraft have wound up punching the nose over and sending it plummeting into the ground. Spatial disorientation can happen really, really quickly. Um, Pilots are trained to react by relying on their instrument readings. The only way to live when you're a pilot, the only way, say that with me, the only way as a pilot you survive spatial disorientation is that you pay attention to your instruments. Now, the whole idea is both your eyes and your inner ear, there's a mechanism in your inner ears that gives you a concept of up, down, right, left. They also call it yaw. It's just where you are, upside down or not. And when a pilot loses the horizon visually, he can no longer depend on his gut feeling about where he is and what he needs to do to successfully navigate that airplane. He can't fly by the seat of his pants. He can't fly by what he feels deep inside. Think about that. 
That is a serious disorientation. Well, then I also shared in Queen City Dot Church under media, you can find this message. I shared about my own spiritual disorientation. In other words, when I saw what happened uh, with uh, Kobe Bryant's family, and I saw that it was connected to a disorientation, it reminded me of a spiritual disorientation I went through about 35 years ago. And I mean, it was serious. All my hopes and dreams went up in smoke. I was uh, impoverished, basically. I had to borrow money to rent a house from my mother, which was terribly humiliating. And um, I was bitter. Anybody been bitter? Of course not. Bitter, frustrated, disappointed, and angry. And that is uh, a pretty volatile, emotional cocktail, I would say. And as a result, I couldn't tell, although I am sort of a prophetic guy, I believe in uh, that God speaks. Um, you can be so hurt, wounded, confused, you have trouble distinguishing what the Lord's really saying to you. And you can make some pretty bad decisions. So what do you do? That's what um, I had to determine. Well, if you're a pilot, and a friend of mine said 100% of the pilots who fly in that condition of spatial disorientation crash. 100%. You cannot, in that condition, land safely without help. You either need help from the tower telling you where you are or you need to be able to look closely at your instruments. And here's what the instruments speak of. They are not connected to you whatsoever. They're not asking you your opinion. They're not asking you how you feel. They're telling you something. See, Americans, we don't want to be told anything. Really? Hey, I'm an American. No, but you will crash that plane as a pilot if you cannot pay close attention to your navigation instruments because it knows where you are. You don't know where you are, but you may think you know. Now, I'm not saying from, the, from a spiritual disorientation, I'm not saying if you don't do exactly what I say this morning, you're going to crash. No, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying there are parallels here. And when I got spiritually disoriented, when I was um, uh, disappointed, when I had lost my way, um, not lost my way from the Lord, but sort of lost my way in who I was and what I was supposed to be doing, um, what did I do? Well, here's what I had to do. First of all, I had to take a deep breath. The second thing I had to do is I had to pay attention to my Bible. That's like an instrument panel. The Bible doesn't really ask you how you feel or what you think. There's some things in there that I believe God is telling us that this is the way it is. Now, there are things we don't understand in the Scripture I, I just sort of push those over. It's the things I do understand that concern me, quite frankly. <laughs> uh, W.C. Uh, Fields, an old comedian, on his deathbed, he'd been an alcoholic, and a buddy of his got there and he was reading the Bible. This guy said, 
what are you reading the Bible for? He said, looking for loopholes. <laughs> well, we have the best loopholes called the forgiveness of God found in Christ Jesus. And sloppy old nasty W.C. Fields, alcoholic comedian, nasty man. I mean, he was just telling you. All he had to do was find that one about Jesus and believe in his heart. And God would have touched his life. That's the loophole. So what do you do? Go by your instrument panel. Something apart from yourself, something apart from your feelings, something apart from your emotional state. Because there's sometimes you can't trust how you feel. How many of you understand that? Yes, yes, you, you know. And... Um, the uh, or and I think it's probably an and the voice from the tower. Now, to me, the voice from the tower were other believers who had already gone through my kind of disaster and had gotten through it, and they could speak into my life, and I could listen to them. I could actually hear. I could I could reorient myself. But another thing I had to do, and this is sort of what we're talking about this morning when I'm talking about a reorientation, we have to take personal responsibility for our actions and our attitudes and our behavior. And see, that's, that's what we found um, there in 1 John. So let me sum this up. Go by your instrument panel. The simple understanding of the scriptures, just the easy stuff. Because it's something apart from yourself. It, it's something that doesn't depend on your feelings. We, we're the most changeable breed of creature. But God doesn't change. His love for us doesn't change. His character doesn't change. His nature doesn't change. Our understanding of it has changed. In other words, when Jesus showed up on the scene as God manifests in the flesh... A lot of people didn't recognize him who'd been hanging around the Old Testament for generations because of his character, because of his nature, because of his kindness. And he was very hard. It was like on only one group of people. He was very, only very, seemed to be very hard on religious people who had no room for people that needed God. That seemed to be the people he had the most problems with. I mean, even the Romans had to get stirred up by the Jews to do something about him. So, anyway. So, back to 1 John. I'm going to reread a couple of these verses, and I'm going to go into some practicals. In verse 6, it says, If we claim that we share life with him but keep walking in the realm of darkness, we're fooling ourselves and not living the truth. But if we keep living in the pure light that surrounds him, we share unbroken fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, continually cleanses us from all sin. How does that happen? I don't know. Instrument panel. That's what it says. How does the blood of Jesus do that? I don't know. But he says if we'll walk in the light, we can share unbroken fellowship with one another and with the Lord. And there's a cleansing aspect of that relational experience as believers. And then in verse 8, he says, If we boast that we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and are strangers to the truth. I had a 
friend of mine say recently, a friend of his was writing a book on how we can live in sinless perfection. I just scratched my head and said, tell me how that turns out. I think if you were, you wouldn't know it. Okay. If we boast that we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and are strangers to the truth. But if we freely admit our sins when his light uncovers them, he will be faithful to forgive us every time. God is just to forgive us our sins because of Christ, and he will continue to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we're not guilty of sin... When God uncovers it with his light, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, what what these verses do is they challenge me. How many of you feel challenged by those verses? I think there's a real challenge there. Um, from a ministry or from a philosophical standpoint, I'm frankly, I'm not sin-oriented towards people. I'm grace-oriented. I'm mercy-oriented. But there's a point here where... Interaction and, and the abundant Christian life will not work if you don't have an honest idea of who you are and, and what you've done and how you relate to other people. And just some good old basic right and wrong. A simple definition of sin is breaking one of the Ten Commandments. That's just a simple definition. Now, the tricky part is you don't become righteous by obeying those commandments. You're given righteousness as a free gift, and when the reality of that touches your heart, you won't break those commandments. But it's a work in progress, right? Yeah, we're works in progress. We don't... Uh, if any man be in Christ, what's it say? All things are passed away. Behold, he's a new creation. Well, if somebody gave me a, a, a new speedboat, it would be all new. But me driving it, that's, I'd have to figure that thing out a little bit. Well, that's what it is to be born from above, have resident in us the capacity to demonstrate this new nature and still have some bugs and missteps. Now, you know I'm talking right you can't deny either thing. You can't deny or you shouldn't deny that you're, you're a new creation, but you can't deny that sometimes this new creation doesn't work too well. And it's really because of those other people that get in our way, I think. Well, that's really not true. That's Yeah, I'm just trying to lubricate your thought process there. But oh, years ago, I had a man... Uh, spiritual, I, I related to him as a spiritual father, and a lot of the things he would tell me were these sort of one-line spiritual principles that are profound. And one of them, he was, he told me, and he said that one of the keys of being free was that you own to disown. Say that with me. Own to disown. And what he meant was that when we're honest about our mistakes, our sins, our offenses, when we own them, in other words, take personal responsibility for them, then we can disown them. We can get free from them. They don't plague us anymore. There, there is some kind of a spiritual, relational washing and refreshing that the Lord brings. Actually, the verse Andy mentioned earlier, I was thinking about this morning, 
Um, it, it's in uh, one of the messages Peter preached in the, in the book of Acts, and he says, now you must repent and turn back to God so that your sins will be removed and so that times of refreshing will stream from the Lord's presence. Now, the idea there is, well, Jesus forgave our sins, but there's a practical outworking, right? right. There's a practical outworking. Um, Just because he forgave us all our sins doesn't give us license to live at a level beneath the dignity of being a child of God. And that's what it is. It's a matter of dignity. It's a matter of respecting who he is and who you are. And so... There's this idea that besetting issues and problems are sometimes connected to whether or not we've taken personal responsibility for what we've said, what we've done, and who we are. Does that make sense? And it's humiliating. It can be. Um, Another thing he said, and of course what I'm talking about now, this is what John is saying here in 1 John. This is a reorientation. He's reminding us this is a practical way that you walk in the fullness of, of who God's called you to be is you, um, you apologize to people. You apologize to people. Those are hard words. I'm sorry. Those are hard words to say, aren't they? I'm sorry. Yeah, but they're important. This man, Arthur Burt was his name, said this also. Take the blame or do it again. Take the blame or do it again, which means when we don't take responsibility for our sins, when we shift the blame to other people or delude ourselves or even determine that what we've done isn't even wrong, then because we, we have all kind of ways to avoid humility and honesty. Come on, you know that's true. Come, somebody help me here. Don't you know that's true? I mean, I'm going to do this without help, but it helps nice. No, when we shift the blame to other people or we delude ourselves or we determine that what we have done isn't even wrong, then we find ourselves in ongoing patterns of harmful behavior. And one of the ways you break out of the pattern of those behaviors is you do what the Bible calls repentance. And repentance is two things. It's turning away from, but it's turning unto. And see, there's a marvelous verse also in 1 John, because if you get too concerned, um, if you get too concerned about what I'm talking about, or if you misunderstand what I'm talking about, you can just become sin conscious. And that's not what I'm saying you need to do at all. And and 1 John actually speaks to that. He says, whenever our hearts make us feel guilty and remind us of our failures, we know that God is much greater and more merciful than our own conscience. And he knows everything there is to know about us. My delightfully loved friends, when our hearts don't condemn us, we have a bold freedom to speak speak face-to-face with God, and whatever we ask of him, we receive because we keep his commands. And by our beautiful intentions, we continue to do what brings pleasure to him. So there can you can take what I'm saying out to an extreme, but 
Most of us know when we mess up, right? We certainly know when everybody else does. So Jesus tells this great story that helps us identify some of the things I'm talking about. It's out of Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. If you want to read or look on your phones, I don't have it up here. Um, That's too much to read out loud, but here's the story. Jesus taught this parable to those who were convinced they were morally upright and those who trusted in their own virtue. Now, that's a key. They trusted in their own righteousness, their own virtue. And the New Testament tells us a righteousness of God has appeared. See, our righteousness is not our behavior Our righteousness is the righteousness of Christ, which then affects our behavior. Trusted in their own virtue, yet looked down on others with disgust. Once there were two men who went into the temple to pray. One was a proud religious leader. The other despised tax collector. The religious leader stood apart from the others and prayed, How I thank you, O God, that I'm not wicked like everyone else. They're cheaters, swindlers, and crooks. Like that tax collector over there. God, you know that I never cheat or commit adultery. I fast from food twice a week, and I give you a tenth of all I make. You know, there was another conversation Jesus had with people, and he said, the law says uh, thou shalt not commit adultery. You, you're familiar with that? I was checking the 10 suggestions, and um, let me see. That was uh, suggestion number seven. I'm talking about 10 commandments. So Jesus was saying, the law says you should not commit adultery. But I say, if you have looked, talking to men, if you have looked on a woman to lust after her, you have already committed adultery. Then he said another time, the the commandment says thou shalt not kill. But I say, if you have hatred in your heart for someone, you have already committed murder. And so here's what Jesus did. Jesus cinched that net up so tight He made it not impossible to meet the righteous standards of God. He simply revealed what the righteous standard of God was, which is absolute moral perfection, which since no one can do, Jesus came and did on our behalf. Are you with me? And so it's it's foolish to begin to identify yourself to criticize others based on your own personal morality. Because I would guess there are a number of murderers and adulterers in the room. I'm one. I mean, according to the definition Jesus gave, now, by the grace of God, been married 43 years, and that's the only woman I have had those kind of relations with. Thank God. But does that mean I've never lusted? No. Isn't that a terrible thing for the preacher to say he has a lust problem? I've got an everything problem. 
Have I ever hated? Oh, well. (laughs) Have I ever felt like I was better than other people? Oh, gosh. I'm done, man. No, but, but see, I believe God is just simply searching our hearts and he's showing, really showing us how much we need the Lord. If that's his standard, and I believe the instrument panel here says it is. And so the religious leader um, talked about what a great guy he was. But then it says in verse 13, this was the tax collector that he was criticizing. The tax collector stood off alone in the corner, away from the holy place, and he covered his face in his hands, and feeling that he was unworthy to even look up to God, beating his breast, he sobbed with brokenness and tears, saying, God, please, in your mercy, look at me, and this is, this is what, the text implies, look at me as you looked at the mercy seat in the holy place sprinkled with the blood. That, that's really what he was saying. Look in your mercy. Forgive me, for I am nothing but the most miserable of all sinners. Which one of them left for home that day made right with God? Well, it was a humble tax collector and not the religious leader. For everyone who praises himself will one day be humiliated before all, and everyone who humbles himself will one day be lifted up and honored before all. Now, I don't think you're supposed to live in that condition of feeling like you're the most miserable of sinners. But the point Jesus is making here is that when you can own who you really are before the Lord and admit it, you don't have to live that way anymore. It's really what he's saying because there's a a humility factor that comes in. And think about this. Jesus justified that man. Now, that doesn't ring with us, but what it means was Jesus declared over that man that he was completely right with God. He had a clean slate. He had a clean conscience. How many of you live with a clean conscience all the time? You know, that thing in there is troublesome, right? But that's what happened. Jesus can actually give you a completely clean conscience. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what you participated in, he and he alone has the capacity to give us a clean conscience, a clean slate where we're not troubled. So, real sustainable freedom comes from taking responsibility for our sin. People justify themselves. How many of you are aware of other people who justify themselves. <laughs> Here's the truth. Sometimes we just do bad things. Sometimes, right? We just do bad stuff, wrong stuff. And then if we, we feel guilty, we won't just say we did it. We want to give an explanation. Right? Yeah. 
Well, here's what really happened. No, come on. But see, but all of that, all those little, I, I had to deal with a man who had broken his marriage vow. He had got involved with another woman. And it turned out to be my job to talk to him about it, try to help him with it. And the only way I know I could help him with it, if he owned up to it and dealt with it, right? I mean, that's what I think the Bible here shows him. So I said, um, did you do this? He said, well, I knew we were in trouble there. (laughs) Well, and I said, no, let's start over. Yes or no? Because I'm trying to get him into freedom. I'm not trying to beat him up. Getting beat up over being messed up doesn't seem to answer the problem. But there's something about meeting Jesus, having this relationship with Jesus, not religion, not even with just Bible study, but this, it, it leads us to this person who can unravel those knots inside of us. Um, then there's that idea of take the blame or do it again. There's something that happens when we don't take responsibility. We find ourselves at some point right back in that same situation. Has anybody ever experienced that? You have these recurring difficulties that are other people's problems? No. Let me read this other story Jesus told. And it's just as important as the one I just uh, read. This is in Luke 7, 36 through 48. So there are about 12 verses, but it's, it's really good. Afterward, a Jewish religious leader named Simon asked Jesus to his home for dinner. Jesus accepted the invitation. When he went to Simon's home, he took his place at the table. In the neighborhood, there was an immoral woman of the streets known to all to be a prostitute. When she heard about Jesus being in Simon's house, she took an exquisite flask made from alabaster, filled it with the most expensive perfume, went right into the home of the Jewish religious leader and knelt at the feet of Jesus in front of all the guests. She was basically uninvited. Broken and weeping, she covered his feet with the tears that fell from her face. She kept crying and drying his feet with her long hair. Over and over, she kissed Jesus' feet. Then she opened her flask and anointed his feet with her costly perfume as an act of worship. When Simon saw what was happening, he thought, this man can't be a true prophet. If he were really a prophet, he would know what kind of sinful woman is touching him. Jesus said to Simon, Jesus said, Simon, I have a word for you. Amy had a word for us this morning. That was good, by the way. That was awesome. Simon, I have a word for you. Go ahead, teacher. I want to hear it. He answered. It's a story about two men who were deeply in debt. One owed the bank $100,000. The other only owed $10,000. When it was obvious that neither of them would be able to pay their debts, the kind banker graciously wrote off the debts and forgave them all that they owed. Tell me, Simon, which of the two debtors would be the most thankful? Which one would love the banker the most? Simon answered, I suppose it would be the one with the greatest debt forgiven. You're right, Jesus agreed. 
Then he spoke to Simon about the woman still weeping at his feet. Don't you see this woman kneeling here? She's doing for me what you didn't bother to do. When I entered your home as your guest, you didn't think about offering me water to wash the dust off my feet. Yet she came into your home and washed my feet with her many tears and then dried my feet with her hair. You didn't even welcome me into your home with the customary kiss of greeting. But from the moment I came in, she's not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't take time to anoint my head with fragrant oil, but she anointed my head and feet with the finest perfume. She's been forgiven of all her many sins. This is why she has shown me such extravagant love. But those who assume they have very little to be forgiven will love very little. Then Jesus said to the woman at his feet, all your sins are forgiven. All the dinner guests said among themselves, who is the one who can even forgive sins? Then Jesus said to the woman, your faith in me has given you life. Now you may leave and walk in the ways of peace. That's a really, really powerful, powerful story. Brian Simmons gives a footnote about Simon. He says, Simon thought Jesus should have known the sinfulness of the woman, but Simon should have known the love of the one next to him who was ready to forgive and restore. Religion focuses on the sinfulness of a person, but faith sees the glory of the one who forgives and heals. Twice in Luke's gospel, this is another footnote, we hear Jesus say, all your sins are forgiven. Once he said it to a man and here to a woman, the proof of her sins forgiven is her love. With the healed man, it was his life where he took up his bed and walked. The degree to which a person can change who really meets Jesus is astounding. That's part of the message here. The degree to which a person can change who really meets Jesus is absolutely astounding. There is no other explanation as to why this former prostitute or evil woman, they're not sure exactly, why she would so boldly and without invitation display her love and demonstrate her unbridled affection. There's no, there's no other explanation. She met Jesus. She got something from Jesus that nothing else could do for her. What was the value of her gift to Jesus that day? Estimated at $54,000. Probably your life savings. She gave up her life savings because she met the lifesaver. That's a good way to think about it. She gave up her life savings because she met the lifesaver. And you know, earlier, the, the problem with the Pharisee that condemned the, the um, tax collector was it said he trusted in himself. He trusted in himself that he was righteous. She trusted in Jesus. You see, that's the essence of being a believer is you put your trust in God. She demonstrated great trust in Jesus for her future and ultimate appreciation for the love and forgiveness she embraced when she met him and knew what he was really like. 
the living proof that the woman knew her sins were forgiven really wasn't of whether Jesus had proclaimed it. She was living proof because of the love she could demonstrate that she had been touched by the forgiveness of God. I like that. One other thing I've thought about. It says in James, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. I want to talk, just mention the value of having a trusted friend, someone you can confide in, your husband, your wife, a friend, but someone that you can be honest with. We all need that. We really do. The importance of true humility and being willing to admit to others the things you have done that have offended them is huge. Huge. How many of you here have thought of someone who needs this message? (laughs) I think it's just part of the basics. We don't need to become overwhelmingly sin conscious, but we do need to take stock of ourselves, you know, just take a basic um, what do they call it when people count all the stuff they've got? Inventory. Yeah, a basic inventory. And uh, if at the end of that list everybody else is messed up and you're not, good luck. No. God loves us. He really does. And he wanted to give, gives us relational tools so that we can demonstrate that love, walk in mercy, have fellowship with one another. Amen. Everybody okay? You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.